breaking bread with other people is its own form of nourishment, you know, is the company and the connection. listening to the Ritualist Podcast, where an ex-Buddhist monk and a former Catholic explore the power, pleasure, and mystery of spiritual practice outside of institutional religion. I'm Shane the Catskills, an artist living at the intersection of social justice and spirituality who spent a decade living in a Zen Buddhist monastery before re-entering lay life in 2019. And I'm Peg Conway, a writer, energy healer, and motherless daughter. I anchored myself in the liturgical rhythms of the Catholic Church for my entire adult life until I just couldn't anymore. In our previous episode, we talked about how rituals, about rituals to mark rites of passage. In this episode, we're talking about food rituals. Good morning to you. Good morning, Shay. Um, How are you arriving? I am, well, I am arriving to this moment and this recording very cheerful and relaxed, when we began talking oh, 15, 20 minutes ago, I was feeling a little more flustered. We're leaving on a big trip this weekend and our dog is apparently sick. And so that was like on my mind. We have since checked in about that in detail. And so I feel like, okay, I'm ready to enter this now. Mm. I know we have this like settling conversation that we have before we hit record. I love that. Um, in my ongoing sort of reports about the weather situation here, that feels like central to my check-in every time it is raining. It's been raining since yesterday. It's going to rain through tomorrow. Um, so grateful for the rain. Um, and is it a lovely rain? It's not torrential scare, you know, like creating its own risks. It's a, it's a natural helpful rain. It seems pretty steady. It does keep me from taking my walk in the morning, which, you know, I'm like, I should just get some rain gear, you know, really, but I'm not complaining at all. I'm very feeling very grateful for the rain. And I look forward to these kind of early recordings because it feels like it sets me up, you know, to, to have like a really excellent day. And I'm really excited to, um, we left kind of a cliffhanger last episode with food rituals and we're going to get to it today. (laughs) And I'm just going to say it's been on my mind all week, you know, since we sort of landed on that. Um, I was thinking, I can't believe it took us this long to get to food. That that (laughs) kind of surprises me when, when upon reflection, because I mean, I love food. I know. And it also feels like, well, we're, I guess we're ready to do it since it kind of arose so naturally. But I was saying to you before we hit record that I feel like anytime food comes into the picture, it's like for, for me, and I'm going to guess for many, many people, a whole Pandora's box of many, many things. Um, you know, I will just out myself immediately as someone who has you know, a history of disordered eating, not in any way that I think is like abnormal in the culture, but just such a um, kind of reclaiming my relationship with food is an ongoing process. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of tucking into this. We, we sort of thought we would start with our traditions, um, food rituals in our former traditions. And so I'm wondering, do you want to go first or would you like me to? Why don't you go first? Okay, then. So um, when when I was thinking about food rituals this week, you know, it struck me that 
the um, liturgy of taking a meal in the Zen tradition um, is one of the most elaborate liturgies that we do. And I used to train people who were doing their first silent meditation retreat on how to do this liturgy. It's called Oriyoki. And it translates literally as the container that holds the right amount. And is this a solo ritual or a communal ritual? It's a communal ritual. And in one sense, it's a very efficient way to feed a large number of people in a short amount of time. And it's also like an incredibly beautiful and powerful ritual. Um, and, you know, the, the robe and the bowl, you know, the monk's robe and the monk's bowl are symbols of the transmission in the Zen tradition. So, you know, it's said that there's, I'm, if you, you know, I'm rolling my eyes as I'm saying this, it's said there's an unbroken lineage from Shakyamuni Buddha to the present day. There is not, there is a contrived lineage that's anyway, I'm not going to get into that, but the, the transmission of the robe and the bowl is still part of the um, ceremony that happens when someone becomes empowered to be a teacher and even when someone or becomes a student, they receive a set of Oriyoki bowls. And when I ordained as a monk, I received um, a set of monks Oriyoki bowls, which, you know, I could, like, I, you can't see me, Peg can see me, but you can't see me who's listening. I'm like holding my hand. There's just, I've never had a bowl fit in my hand so perfectly as that bowl. Anyway, I'm so is this a ritual of actually consuming a meal? Yes. Okay. I'm I know <laughs> I know very little about Zen Buddhism, especially in regards to rituals like this. I'm gonna try to kind of also move myself along because I realize I'm like definitely like tapping into like so many things I haven't thought about for a long time. And there's a lot there for me. So I'm just like naming that. Um, you know, I should just say on a regular day when we take a meal, there's a meal service. <clears throat> excuse me, that happens where the cook um, makes a meal offering, a food offering, and does three bows, and everyone does standing bows with them. And there's a chant that we do, 72 labors brought us this food, we should know how it comes to us. And it's this whole sort of service that we do before we take a meal. And that's just on a regular day. So during a silent meditation retreat, we're sitting in the meditation hall, um, with our bowls. And, you know, the first thing we do is we chant a brief biography of the Buddha. We open up our bowls. It's a, it's choreographed. There's a whole order of operations. There's a whole way that you unwrap the bowls, create a little placemat with your wrapping cloth, take out the bowls in a particular order and your utensils and you set it up and it's like beautiful. And then there are servers who actually come into the meditation hall on a particular queue while we're chanting the names of the of the buddha and they serve the meal they stand in front of a pair of people and that you all bow together so you're like holding up a giant bowl of oatmeal and bowing and then the server gets down on their knees and puts the bowl on the floor and you hold your bowl over the food bowl and you're served and you indicate with hand signals like more or less or that's the right amount and the whole meal is brought in that way. And once all the food has been served, 
then we do the meal chant and we eat the meal. Everyone eats and kind of finishes more or less at the same time. And then there's a whole liturgy of like scraping out your bowls and washing your bowls. And the servers bring hot tea to like wash your bowls. It's a whole, and I did this hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And, um, I still like to eat my food in bowls actually, now that I think about it, no matter what it is. And it was a, um, there are so many teachings embedded in that liturgy. I mean, I couldn't even, we'd be here all day, Mm -hmm. but the, um, context in which it takes place during a silent meditation retreat, where you're not feeding your senses with things, you're really just sitting, you know, and so your other senses become very heightened. Mm. And so to take a meal in that context, you know, to eat plain white rice, um, and a simple meal is really, uh, mm. Wow, I just, it's really taking me back. But, you know, it feels in, I feel a sort of resonance between what I learned in Zen and what we, what I've learned through Way of the Rose about, you know, we eat and are eaten. That is life. Life eats life. You know, when I heard, the sort of interpretation of the mystery of the nativity is that, you know, Jesus is put in a manger in a food trough, you know, and that there's a teaching in that, you know, um, that we will like return to the earth and be food for other beings and that we have to take and consume life in order to, you know, our founding abbot was an Italian guy from New Jersey and he was not a vegetarian and a lot of people would give him shit about it. And he'd be like, you know, do you think a carrot does not have a life? You know, and I love that. I love that because you'd put the, you know, he didn't have any sort of like patience for it, but you know, it's something to really think about, like whether you're eating animals or not, you are eating life in order Mm -hmm. to sustain your life. And it really, I feel like the rituals, you know, I also think about like beginners doing that ritual. It's so stressful. You don't like, you know, who knows what you're tasting in a moment like that. You're just trying to like keep up with everyone and like not make a mess. But, you know, once once you settle into it, it is a very powerful bringing of one's attention to the question of taking life in order to sustain life. And, um, you know, we make a food offering during that ritual for, you know, the dead, which I also, I think is interesting now in light of my current life. And, um, it really is a question of, what is the right amount of anything? What is the right amount of time? What is the right amount of energy for this particular task? Like it's a teaching that really can travel anywhere and be invoked anywhere. And um, it was a very, very powerful training. And just the last thing I'll say about that, it was at the monastery that I first ever used a rubber spatula to scrape out a bowl. And, you know, that, um, that, pointing to not wasting life at every level. Um, you know, I learned how to use every part of the broccoli, you know, how to peel the stems and cut those up. And it's like, you don't not use anything that can be used. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that that was a powerful teaching about not wasting life. So 
I'll just start with that as, as sort of a, um, a place to enter into my former tradition. Um, food rituals were so important. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. I really knew nothing of that. Although I did, I have had experience at retreat centers of, you know, scraping bowl, like not Zen places necessarily, but I can kind of identify with that reference essentially. Well, of course, coming from the Catholic tradition, like the meal, the Eucharist is the center stage of the whole, the height and summit of the practice. I think the bishops or a pope have used in a document before the source and summit, I think maybe is the phrase, Um, which of course, you know, the, the mass is centered around a meal, breaking of bread and sharing of wine that originates from the last supper, the night before the crucifixion, which is really a reenactment of Passover, which we, which we sort of, we just sort of reflexively say that they gathered for the Passover meal. I want to say a little more about that, but my own experience, I, I have always, I always liked going to mass. There was something mysterious about it. And I remember making my first communion when I was seven and being very excited, but it was kind of weird. Like this host, it didn't seem like bread. It seemed like just this flat thing that tasted like cardboard was kind of weird. And we didn't have wine. We didn't get to partake of the wine. Only the priest had the wine. And the role of the priest is like by virtue of ordination, the priest is like the representative of Jesus. I mean, his, he has changed in his being in order to be able to uh, say mass. And, you know, because we the Catholic church teaches that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Jesus. And they trans in the, under a doctrine called transubstantiation, that it's actual substance, even though it outwardly still looks like bread and wine or host and wine, whatever it's, it's substantively or substantive. I, I can't quote chapter and verse on this anymore, but that at its core, at it, in its reality, it is the body and blood of Jesus. And I always kind of liked that. I liked the sense of almost the mystical sense of being connected in a body, you know, about the body of Christ. We are all part of the body of Christ. And when I started going to the parish um, at my college, when I was actually in late high school, where I, you know, stayed for 30 years, um, they used baked bread. It mm-hmm. was a flat, you know, round thing. It actually had baking soda in it, which was a big no-no, at least for a while it did. Then the church, the bishops cracked down. Um, so it had fewer, it had the few ingredients, but it had whole wheat as well as white flour. And it, and it had a little bit of honey in it, which is verboten. Now they don't do that. I don't think. Um, but it was bread. It was real bread. Mm. And so it, it, it was this moment of, wow, this is a real meal. We are gathered together in a real meal. We have joyful singing. And so I, I mean, I gravitated to that for ever and ever. Like that was the center of, and that, that drew me to that ritual, to that place, because that ritual was uniquely vibrant in that church. And it rippled out into my understanding of meals. Like my, I mean, I think I have a natural, um, interest in entertaining. I like to have have people over and I like to gather friends and I like to cook some, I, you know, I think I married the right person because he cooks. And so we, we work together in the kitchen a lot. And that in itself is a, um, there's a lot of, we have a lot of rituals associated with eating together that I think I used to, I used to like those as, um, sort of connections. I, I think 
for most of my adult life, particularly when I was raising my children, I was interested in trying to connect what happened at church to what happened at home. And so, you know, displaying different symbols or, you know, sort of having mini rituals. And, and as I have no longer been part of that practice in the Catholic community, I don't do most of those things anymore. And that's okay. Like I, I don't, they, I do things that stand alone They're I'm not trying to fit into some external system. I'm just doing what I like. I like lighting candles for dinner. I like setting the table. I mm. like having, um, you know, pretty napkins and using the different sets of silver or China that I have from various ancestors and, or that we acquired when we got married, which now after 30 years have their own sort of resonance and tradition. Um, and it, it lightly connects me back to what my, you know, my former life, my former community, but it also stands alone. And, and a big shift in my thinking, and I think I've probably mentioned when I took the classes on Judaism through the Melton program, it's an adult education program globally for Jewish people. And they were offering it, um, this is about 10 years ago now, at the Jewish Community Center in our village where I was a member. And I thought, oh, that sounds so interesting because I had so many Jewish connections in my neighborhood. And it was a two-year thing, once a week for an hour. And it was the most fun thing. Like I hadn't had so much fun since I left college, probably mm. just learning for the sake of learning. We were taught by rabbis. and But learning like about Judaism, I realized, oh, that's why we do this. Oh, that's mm. why we do this. This We had just left it as the Passover meal. Well, Passover has its whole, you know, just, you know, I had a very light understanding of what Passover was. Um, but I began to have a deeper understanding of what Passover was. And suddenly the Eucharist felt not as rich. I felt sort of, Hmm, this isn't, I don't know. It just made me feel like it was, it was appropriating something in a way I hadn't fully understood. And that I was never made to feel that way in the, in the classes, the questioning of, Hmm, how, what does this mean to me now? And I also some of my best favorite meal memories actually um, are from what, during that time period, especially some of my Jewish friends took it upon themselves to further my Jewish education by inviting me to certain occasions. And my friend uh, Natalie invited us to a Shabbat. She invited us to a Passover Seder, and she invited us more than once to uh, meals in their sukkah in the fall. And I want to tell you, one of the, the sukkah, the first sukkah meal is one of the most beautiful experiences of my whole life. It was kind of chilly. It was October. We were outside under the, you know, the roof of the the sukkah where the, the roof is like just reeds or brushes because we'd be able to see the stars. Um, and those sets up, you know, different prayers. Some of the teenagers who were present led the prayers in Hebrew. Um, and it was the idea that we are, we were remembering the 40 days in the desert and the fragility of that, but being together, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing it justice, but it was, it was incredibly meaningful. And so it just, I think over time, my sense of what a meal could be and what the gathering, the power of gathering together. Mm. And I think undercurrent is the notion of being supported by the earth and, and honoring our part in creation, you know, um, I could say much about, I think we're going to have more episodes on this topic, but 
like the role of gardening in my life around that same time, you know, in the, over my adult life, I'm working in gardens. I mean, there's just so much. Um, but in terms of my tradition, it was very, very important to me. And it, it really anchored me and it really influenced my actions in my ordinary life. Um, the reverence of lighting candles, like all those little things that I, I do still value, of course. Um, but it didn't, it didn't hold up over time. It kind of, I think I, I stepped further, I think is how I would put it. I feel like that's actually just an ongoing theme in the storytelling I hear you doing across episodes, which has to do with, you know, finding something very potent and powerful in the tradition. And then through the course of leaving that tradition, kind of um, alchemizing that experience into your own your own rituals, mm-hmm. which, you know, mm-hmm. take the feelings or, you know, the quality of the experience without necessarily the same symbols or the same, you know, and the kind of like making it your own, mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. like, you know, stepping out of the structure to be able to find your freedom in your own rituals. You know, hearing you talk about this, well, first of all, it's like every every tradition has their food rituals, right? Mm-hmm. Like very much so, you know, because it's just like the central activity of human life. Um, and I was talking to my tarot mentor, Sento, about this episode that we were going to be recording this. And he reminded me that during the silent meditation retreats at the monastery, you know, breakfast and lunch are taken in that very formal Oriyoki style, but supper is an informal meal in the dining hall, just taken in silence. And he reminded me of, you know, serving, you know, going through the serving line, getting your food, you know, your beverage, and then like finding a place, you know, and sitting down and you're like eating with a room full of people at a table with people, but not talking. And he talked about how much he loved that. And And like, I had forgotten about that experience, the feeling of being with other bodies eating, but not, you know, there's something very enriching and amazing about sharing a meal with people and talking and, you know, and there's something very intimate and enriching about taking a meal with other people and not talking, um, that I had forgotten about and really love. And talking about all this also makes me sort of understand that like most of my meals these days I take by myself, which is such a huge shift from Mm. every day eating with a community of people, like whether I liked it or not. And now I mostly eat by myself, whether I like it or not. And, um, that is, I don't know. I'm just sort of taking that in. I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it. I mean, when I think about my current food rituals, I mean, you know, with when it comes to food, I feel like I'm really skating that line between ritual and neurosis, actually. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's like I have my sort of particular kind of habits and, you know, it's not necessarily a ritual, you know? Um, and there are times when I actually light all my altars in my room and sit down and really like enjoy something to eat. Um, but that's not a frequent occasion. And, you know, my relationship with food just feels so, um, you know, warped by the culture. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about appetite in general. 
Um, and the, you know, institutionalized religions sort of take and stance on appetites and what we should do about them or not do about them. And I feel like that there's a lot of like unlearning that I am doing in order mm. to be in relationship with my appetites in a real way. Um, you know, I just think about like from a very young age, I knew like, don't eat that. Are you going to eat that? Mm. Are you going to eat all of that? You know, that's, a, that's not a snack. That's a me like just this, you know, my mom was always on diets. I was aware of that. I was aware of the constantly changing closet of like, you know, and that I feel like is not super unusual, you know? Um, and I, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into that, but also, you know, this sort of, um, warping, of our relationship to our appetites and instincts. Um, well, that That is definitely, like I, I have painted a very warm picture of my own experience in my own parish, which was my experience, but I acknowledge and am very aware that that, that is not exactly the church's, the church is very specific and very, um, clamp down you know it's all very laid out and rubric oriented as to the right way to celebrate the eucharist and the right people who are allowed to hold the host or give out the you know communion like all the and the rules have you know become more they've always been important but to the church but in the last 20 years i think it's become even more like clamp down policing around who's allowed yeah. to do what. Yeah. And, you know, the whole thing with, you know, can a politician who votes for abortion have keep all, all that stuff that's, that is further just what you're saying, like making food, this well, I think or stick, or it's not, it's not about nourishing ourselves. Like the whole concept of nourishing ourselves is not, Mm. It's not where we start. We start yes. with the rules. We start with the, with the pyramid or the, right. the the food groups or the um, no car. Like there's there's just a lot. Um, actually, uh, an author I really have liked. Uh, her name is uh, Gertrude, Gertrude Mueller Nelson. She wrote a book called To Dance with God that was very influential for me about ritual in the home and the rituals of the church in the home. And she reflects that the changes in the church in mid 20th century, where like penances were reduced and all the different um, like fasting on Fridays and things like that, when all that went out the door, then we had more neurosis about food. Like when we had planned in her, she was sort of suggesting that when we had planned rituals of sacrifice and, and communal so, together doing this, abstaining from this or fasting from things, we were healthier than when we just, you know, threw it all out and then became subject to all the neurosis of, of the outer world. I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thought mm, that mm. to give something a form versus having it be. Um, but I think, I think you're onto something about the concept of appetite. Like, again, if we're always following rules that someone else has laid down, whether it be a doctor or an inf Instagram influencer or a cleric of some sort, that's not helping us 
be our best selves inside. Like, well, it's not helping us attune to our actual appetite, our desire, our need. What does our body need? Like I often, I'm just going to say, like, I sometimes don't realize that I'm hungry until I'm like having a meltdown. And then I have to be like, did I, oh, I haven't eaten in like nine hours, you know? I mean, that's, and that's normal for me. You know, it's like, wow, that's. Well, one could say you're engrossed in your creative efforts and lost track of time. Just a very creative soul. Yes. Um, we could say that. And also, I mean, I don't, when I think about like, when I eat, it's generally not because I'm hungry and that I, I don't even necessarily feel too in tune with that signal to be perfectly honest. And, you know, I remember I was definitely much more in tune with that when I lived at the monastery, because you weren't thinking about when you were going to eat, you know, it's like the meals are at this time and then the food's not around, you know, it's like you eat at mealtime and then that's it. And like the last meal is at like 6 PM and then you might not eat breakfast until 8 AM. So, you know, it's just fasting. Intermittent fasting. Yeah. Intermittent inadvertent fasting. And, you know, I have to say like food didn't take up a lot of space in my mind. You know, it was like, um, I understood how it was made and who was making it. And it tasted, you know, people would often come to the monastery and be like, Oh my God, the food is amazing. And it was like, it was amazing. You know, we had great cooks and stuff. And also it's like the food is made with people's like attention. And that's also what makes it taste good. Mm, Right. Is that people are, actually doing, you know, the thing while they're doing it. And I remember very distinctly during a meditation retreat, this is my second teacher, my, my middle teacher. I remember saying to him, like, I just feel like I can't completely relax. Like I'm having these sort of like body sensations. And I was sort of describing it to him. And, and he, he said, you know, well, just think about like the, the karma of like, Everything, every piece of clothing you have on your body, every piece of food that you put in your mouth, where that comes from, the conditions under which it was made, the sort of life of the person who's doing that work. And like, how could you not feel a little uneasy? Hmm. And it's something I think about a lot. Like, you know, how could we not feel uneasy when we can go to the supermarket and buy you know, animals prepackaged in plastic wrap, you know, and be so far from, and, you know, factory farming and genetic engineering. And it's like, how could we, you know, the way, and not to mention the way our clothes are made, you know, (laughs) vestments, we could actually have a whole episode about that too, uniforms and so on and so forth. But, you know, to think about, you know, under what conditions most clothing is made, it's, it's, you know, we're wearing people's suffering. We're eating people's and animals' suffering, you know, under the conditions that, you know, our culture um, produces, you know. We're and s- we are not outside of that. We cannot be outside of that. Exactly. We are, we are in it. Exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, as you were talking, I was reminded, kind of reflecting on my own personal food history, I would be remiss to not acknowledge that. Um, after my mom died, like food was a source of my sorrow in the sense of, you know, I had to, I made my own lunch for school. There was a lack, that was where I experienced a lack of mothering in mm. many ways. Like 
for my, what I needed, you know, there was always food was always, you know, my grandma's, my dad, I mean, we did have food. It wasn't like we were having cold cereal for dinner or something like that, but, or that no one made dinner where there was always food, but it was always like, to me, food is love food. Create. I think this is my innate nature, even outside of, you know, my Catholicism that, you know, when I would come home from the neighbors and if my dad wasn't home yet and the kitchen was dark, I would feel sad. Like mm. I would feel particularly motherless at that moment. But if, even if he was home, but if he was home and making dinner, it felt a lot like lights on in the kitchen kind of thing. Um, but I, I really love it when people cook for me. Like that feels, that is a way that I feel very loved because I think having to provide my own food from a young age, more so than typical perhaps, I feel, I, it makes me feel very special and loved when people make food for me. And I think that's one of the reasons I love the Joe, another reason I love the Joe Cook so much mm. and that I let him. <laughs> I love that. But it's also a way that I, in my life, I like when my kids were, you know, grade school and high school, um, I did most of the cooking. I made their lunch. Making their lunches was huge. Um, it's a way of showing love as well as receiving love. So food is, food is very, I certainly have gone through periods of emotional, like emotional eating, you know, let's have, have some cookies because I'm tired or mad or depressed, you know, frustrated. But I think, I don't know, we have that stuff around and I do eat it. And if I just eat it, I don't, it doesn't have this big charge as much as it used to. I don't know if that's just part of being older or yeah. um, if I'm going to eat a cookie, I'm going to eat a cookie and I don't eat a dozen. Like I, once I started, I don't know when this happened. I don't, I don't know how or when this happened, but like, I'm not, I don't binge almost. I almost never binge. I might overeat a little bit at a meal or something, but I, my meals are more structured. Like I eat a meal and I eat a snack. Sometimes I forget to eat a snack and I get hungry, but, and I get cranky, but I'm better at eating than I used to be. I think I'm definitely an emotional eater. And I also just feel like that emotional eating is a completely legitimate coping mechanism. I mean, I just, you know, I just will, I think I am loath to problematize every mm -hmm. single thing that I do at mm -hmm. this point. <laughs> when, you know, and it's not that hard. I mean, okay. So I eat three Oreos instead of one. I mean, maybe I feel a little full, but it doesn't. I mean, I'm, living, living on in, in the, in this world, I'm kind of just like, you know, I don't know, emotional eating. There's nothing wrong with that. There are, are many ways to soothe oneself and mm -hmm. food is, uh, and I, I also just want to name like the elephant in the room here is my ex who was the cook at the monastery a couple times and was, is the most amazing cook I've ever known. Mm -hmm. And, um, he expressed his creativity and his, um, you know, he had very like large appetites. He's a, a Taurus and, you know, loves food and really like cares about, he was sort of had this perfect mix of being like very scientific about food, but also very creative about it. He was one of those people that could just like, he would just like open the monastery fridge and see what was left from leftovers and could make this incredible thing. Joe does the same thing. It is such a gift. It's oh such my a gosh. gift. Where, where I would open and say, there's nothing to eat. Right. He pulls out this, this, and this. And I'm like, magic. really? And then I'm like, then an hour later, I'm like, wow, this is great. And he's like, well, I'll never make it again because we won't have this combination of ingredients Ex again. Yeah. But 
Yeah. I mean, there's something really about that. So, you know, he cooked all the time and was an amazing cook. It also kind of ruined me for going out to restaurants because I felt like nothing could ever, you know, kind of meet that. We lived for a brief period of time um, outside of the monastery and he would cook these huge meals and pack them up and take them to our neighbors. And, you know, I would do the dishes. That was like a whole thing. But, you know, that that's very tied up in all of my sort of memories and emotions around food too, you know, is that it was such a huge part of his life and our life. And it was like his service position at the monastery for several years. Mm. And, um, you know, in the Zen tradition after the abbot, the Tenzo or the head cook is the most important position. I can get behind that. Yeah. And, you know, so, um, all of that is mixed in with it too. Oof, I, I definitely feel like I feel as we're talking about this, I like I feel really hot and like I don't know, like I'm having a whole kind of activated, you know, like emotional experience. I mean, I mean, that's the thing, right? Food is so much more than just food. That is so true. And the and to have rituals around it, the ritual of, you know sharing a meal with other people, you know, breaking bread is like a, you know, an idiom. It's a phrase. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's common. Secular, and, really. And that, the, point. you know, that sharing, breaking bread with other people is its own form of nourishment, you know, is the company and the connection and, um, and all of that. This is sort of an endless topic, but I definitely feel like, um, I'm going to need to take a nap after this. Oh my goodness. I feel like I'm still scratching the surface. I, I don't even know all the things I could say about food. I think I yeah. know that I have certain dishes I like to make at certain times of year. Mm. Um, actually being part of a community guard, well, being part of a CSA for a number of years and then get it, you know, that, that actually changed my relationship with food a mm. lot in the sense of knowing where things like growing things and seeing what they look like in the ground. Have you ever seen asparagus in the ground? Yes. I had never, until I was in my probably forties or thirties, my forties, I had not ever seen asparagus in the ground or what certain herbs look like. And it was really cool. I felt like I was accessing this holy grail of knowledge that I had not had. Mm. And, um, becoming more intuitive and then having a share like the weekly allotment. Okay. What we're having for dinner is not, Oh, what are we going to have? It's what do we have? Right. What are we going to make with what we have? It was such a paradigm shift. It was beautiful. It really, it made me feel very much more connected to the earth, of course. Um, and I, I really changed my relationship with food about what it's for and where it comes from mm. and what to do with it. And what is a ritual? Like my children used to make fun of me. I would bring the vegetables home and just like swoon over them on the, on the counter. And they'd be just like eye rolling. And then, you know, we'd talk about the tomatoes and I wouldn't buy, and then it got to, I wouldn't buy them in the wintertime from the grocery store. I mean, I told my son, they have no soul. I cannot buy this. And he was like, oh my God, mom. And then later in life, when he was a young adult and those tomatoes, I didn't buy them, mom. They didn't have any soul. That's right. (laughs) He understood. And he he used that expression when he was somewhere and they were like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Um, so anyway, that's actually been a renewed joy for me here in our in our new neighborhood where I've been recently volunteering in a little garden. And last week I brought home um, some cherry tomatoes 
and snippets of basil. And Joe had bought some um, fresh mozzarella. So we made a caprese salad and it was like the best thing I had eaten in forever. Like mm. I just, I just, not only do I, I mean, we had been going to farmer's market, a, a different farmer's market than we had before. And um, I don't know that that's the ritual now to me, like the, the, where did it come from is part of my consciousness and feels inherent to the ritual. Mm. Shout out to the monastery's garden and gardener, whose name is Yukon, who is like the most beloved monk ever of all time. Um, he's really an incredible person. And he suffered as we all suffered when he was the monastery's bookkeeper for many years, because that was not his wheelhouse at oh, no. all. <laughs> and by his own admission. And finally, he he managed to land the gardener spot. And it's like he's in his happy place. And, um, that garden, what he's done with it is absolutely, I mean, I haven't seen it in a few years, but it was, you know, absolutely incredible. And what I really love about him as a gardener is that he had a whole bed set aside in the garden for weeds. Mm. It was, he called it the Xbox. And, you know, he was kind of like, it's, it's a place in the garden where like, I'm not, nobody's going to go in there and fuss with anything. Things can just do what they want to do. And I just love that whole, it's such a great, um, kind of encapsulation of his beautiful mind. That well, he, I love that. It's like also like when churches or kivas, you know, they have the air hole, you know, for the in and out for the spirit to come in. It's like leaving a place, leaving a place for the unexpected, mm. even while you're cultivating, I think is a very, um, I don't know. I just like that acknowledgement that, you know, because cultivating and gardening is a um, controlling act, you know, choosing this over that and trying to make this happen and not that happen. And so allowing, I love that, allowing some wildness, mm -hmm. even among the order is, is a, it's a spiritual message. I think it's a, it seems like a ritual and, a, and an acknowledgement of a, of a larger story. And also just a little bit of a, a spiritual middle finger to capitalism. Like we're not going to maximize every single cubic foot of, mm -hmm. you know, growing space. We're going to like, you know, leave some for, for, I love that the unexpected, the mysterious and shout out and to some my some weeds are very useful or nutritious can make. In fact, I brought home, this was not a weed though. This is an herb. The, the gardener, um, the garden manager that I work with, um, said, oh, this is uh, it was whole, called holy basil. You can make tea with it. So I snipped a little bit, made some tea when I got home. It was like, oh my gosh, this is like magic. It magical. Like magical. Yeah. So do you think we should pivot to our, our closing? I'm ready. I feel like are. we're already sort of dancing around it yeah, a little I, bit. I sort of accidentally took us there. Um, what are you enjoying eating right now? Well, I have mentioned tomatoes. Yes. I have had a renewed delight in corn on the cob. I kind of was off corn on the cob for a while. And then we started going to this farmer's market, which is actually the farmer's market that Joe's mom went to forever. And she had this corn man that she religiously bought from. And we think we're buying from this. We're buying from the same location mm. where the, the stand is. Um, we think it might be descendants of her corn man, um, but we've been buying ears of corn and we, you know, it's been a great vehicle for eating butter, which is always yes. enjoyable, like the richness of that. Um, so that's a little like we we've eaten it probably, I don't know, five or six times in the last two weeks. Mm. And 
we're not going to have it again. Like it, this is the time of year where we binge on that. And that has been so fun. Tomatoes earlier in the summer, we had blueberries. Um, I don't know the the seasonal, the seasonal touch points are what delight me the most in terms of eating. Um, I have been eating. There is a takeout place about a 15 minute drive from where I live called Hirana market. And it's Filipino food, mm. um, authentic. And there is a fried chicken that they make there, um, during the week that is, um, outrageous. Um, they are moving to another location too far away for me to go to. So I feel like I'm just like, oh, you bummer. Know, I know, I know they've grown out of their, their current location. But, um, the other thing that I am just like swooning over right now is shout out to my housemate, Mary, who is in charge of the garden and does so much work in there an amazing job. And she grew um, husk cherries this year, which, you know, typically we can buy them at the farm stand, but she's growing them in the garden. And that to me is, I mean, you know, there's not enough of them to just like eat a mindless handful. It's like, there's enough to like have one a couple times a day, maybe, you know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. and there's, so there's something about that. It's kind of like, okay, pay attention. <laughs> like this is, you know, a moment here. And it's just such a, um, satisfying experience of like pushing this like round little cherry out of its little, um, biodegradable husk, you know, seeing it emerge out of its little husk. And then, you know, it's this beautiful kind of like sunlight kind of color. And then it just has such an unusual, you know, it's like a little sweet and tart. And it's I'm going to have to Google these. I'm not familiar with husk cherries. I don't know what they're, if they're called something else in real life, but that's what we call them. And they are I mean, they're delicious no matter where I get them when we have them. But the fact that she's grown them this year in the garden, they taste amazing. And she's grown a bunch of cherry tomatoes and um, regular tomatoes <clears throat> that are just absolutely outstanding and fighting the all the animals that are trying to eat oh, them. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, it's like the, the sacrifice of a good portion of it, but um, I really, this time of year, tomato sandwich is just like what oh, it's yeah. all about. Yes. Yeah. Now my mouth is watering. <laughs> so, um, is there anything that you want to let people know about that you're up to? So this, this episode I'm guessing is going to be coming out sometime in mid to late October. So if there's anything that you want to, um, give people a heads up about. Well, I have scheduled the uh, energy first aid class. It's going to be on November 5th at one o'clock um, on Zoom, $20. And people who attend live will be put in a drawing for a free one-on-one -on -one healing touch session, virtual or in-person, depending on where you are. And everyone who signs up will have the opportunity for a discounted healing touch session. Lucky or in person. Lucky all of them. That's amazing. I, it will there there will be a page on my website to sign up, but I have not actually created that yet. Great. We'll actually put a link in um before this episode airs so that you can go right into the episode notes and find it. Um, is there anything else you want to let people know about? Not right now, no. Okay. Um, so me, just the usual things, shayingthecatskills.com, sign up for my newsletter. Thank you so much, everyone, for 
um, listening, we would love to hear from you about food and food rituals, because I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting this and, um, yeah. Thanks so much, Peg, as always. Thank you. See you later. 